DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to the Georgia Today podcast from GPB News. Today is Friday, June 23rd. I'm Peter Biello. On today's episode, a Cobb County teacher is under scrutiny for addressing divisive concepts in the classroom. Protesters say the state's domestic terrorism law is being used to scare them into silence. And in honor of Cephalopod Week, we'll tell you what you need to know about the super smart invertebrates. These stories and more are coming up on this edition of Georgia Today. Drug overdose deaths in Savannah's Chatham County so far this year are double what they were at the same time last year. That's according to the county's counter-narcotics team. Its director, Michael Sarhat, told the county commissioners this morning that so far this year, 46 people in Chatham County have died from drug overdoses, compared to 23 a year ago. We're working as hard as we can enforcement-wise to get as much of that off the street and the number of investigations that we're doing on a daily basis that don't include fentanyl are slim. Fentanyl found in drugs like cocaine and counterfeit pills is causing a spike in opioid-related overdose deaths statewide and nationally. Sarhat says his agency is fighting the epidemic through education, especially about the overdose-reversing medication naloxone. A teacher in Metro Atlanta's Cobb County could be the first educator in Georgia to face discipline under laws passed last year addressing so-called divisive concepts in the classroom. The local school district placed elementary school teacher Katie Rinderley on administrative leave after she read fifth graders a rhyming book challenging gender assumptions. Jeff Hubbard of the Cobb County Association of Educators says the new laws could ruin the career of an exemplary educator. You're not going to get a job in the state of Georgia when you have to put terminated on your application for any other county. And because the hearing is not until August 3rd, she's basically in limbo until then. And what it would have to be would there would have to be a Georgia school system, public school system that would be willing to hire her, even though Cobb has fired her because they're saying she broke this policy for writing a book that her children, you know, chose for her to read. Then it sends a horrible message. Anything that touches a diverse issue of diversity, of um, equity and equality or inclusion, stay away from it or else. Rinderley has retained a lawyer to fight her planned termination. A Cobb County School District spokesperson did not respond to a request for comment. The director of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation is leaving his position less than a year after he took it. Cobb County officials announced yesterday that Mike Register plans to return to his job as the county's public safety director. Governor Brian Kemp tapped him to lead the state's top law enforcement agency last August. Register will remain at the GBI through July. An announcement on his successor is expected to come later. Protesters are planning demonstrations this weekend to show their opposition to the Public Safety Training Center planned for a forest in southeast Atlanta. It's part of what they're calling a week of action. At the last week of action, nearly two dozen people were arrested and charged under the state's domestic terrorism law. Some protesters say that charge is being used to scare them into silence. Priscilla Grimm lives in New York City now, but she was born in Atlanta's Northside Hospital. She has Georgia roots and says she loves this area. From a phone in the DeKalb County Jail, she told me how the South River Forest drew her back. When I heard the call to camp in the woods to literally save the trees, who wouldn't answer that if you love nature and know how important it is for us on this planet? 
The call came from opponents of the proposed public safety training center who'd been camping there for months. And she was in the forest in March when a peaceful concert took a turn. Some protesters, many wearing black, chased police, threw rocks and Molotov cocktails, and set fire to construction equipment. On the advice of her lawyer, Grimm won't share many details of her experience, but she remembers the moment. See, I was arrested with a gun to my head. Like, what? And then she was charged with domestic terrorism. Grimm spent a month in the DeKalb County Jail. When we next spoke on Zoom, she had been released on bond. She says the charges are ridiculous. Nobody is a domestic terrorist. Even if people did throw rocks, that's not terrorism. Is that terrorism? Like, I mean, honestly, is it? Scholars and politicians have spent decades debating what terrorism is. George's law captures a common area of agreement, murder meant to scare people into behaving differently. But it also includes something more subtle, the destruction of critical infrastructure to advance a belief. And the law leaves room for prosecutors to define critical infrastructure. That bothered former Representative Bob Trammell and other Democrats when Republicans passed it more than five years ago. The definition of critical infrastructure was certainly a central piece of the objection that we had because it was so expansive that it could be used to capture almost anything. A similar domestic terrorism bill in Oregon narrowly defines critical infrastructure as things like utilities, data centers, and public roads. Republican State Senator Bill Cowsert, who pushed for Georgia's law, didn't respond to our request for comment. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which charged Priscilla Grimm and other protesters with domestic terrorism, declined to comment. The DeKalb County DA's office also declined, but then handed the prosecutions over to the office of Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr. Carr could not be reached for comment before deadline. Prosecutors could have brought other charges, says David Byman, professor of security studies at Georgetown University. But he says these charges are a powerful tool for prosecutors. It's a harder sell to a jury to say, you know, find this person innocent if terrorism is floating in the air. Hey, y'all, how's it going? Hey, Good morning. Good morning. Meanwhile, protests continue under the law's shadow. Outside the DeKalb County government offices in Decatur this spring, protesters gathered for a sit-in. Mariana Satterley of Atlanta was among them. If you look around, you see sweet signs, a banjo, somebody brought coffee, other folks reading. You know, it's, it's a nice morning, so the risk feels a little bit less. Less, but not zero. Satterley says they're aware of police officers watching them nearby. They say these domestic terrorism charges are an obscene overstep. That's a certain kind of law enforcement, and it looks more like intimidation and repression. It's textbook intimidation and repression. But for other protesters, the law changes nothing. Kendall Berry lives in Atlanta. I mean, it doesn't really factor it too much other than I think, like, it made me want to do it more just because we're clearly not domestic terrorists. (laughs) And I would like for people to see that. But even being accused of domestic terrorism has consequences. Priscilla Grimm lost her job at Fordham University. She says she's now looking for a new one. I have more time on my hands, and I can be an activist and hopefully a writer. Grimm is raising money to fight the charges, which she says is slow-going and frustrating. It's unclear when she'll be back in court. If convicted, she could spend years in prison. And as we mentioned, DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston says her office is withdrawing from the prosecution of all current cases related to the controversial Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. In a statement today, the DA's office says there's a, quote, fundamental difference in prosecutorial philosophy between the DeKalb County and state law enforcement agencies prosecuting the cases. The DA's office declined requests to elaborate. 
In total, more than 40 people have been arrested in the past year on domestic terrorism charges stemming from protests, and three others have been arrested on charity fraud and money laundering charges. A South Korean auto parts supplier plans to build a $72 million manufacturing facility in Metro Atlanta's Henry County. NVH Korea said yesterday that it plans to hire 160 workers at the site designed to build battery components. It's the latest Georgia jobs announcement to come from the electric vehicle sector since Hyundai, SK On, and Rivian announced projects in the state over the past two years. State officials are breathing a sigh of relief as bald eagle surveys show the iconic raptors are nesting and fledging young at healthy rates this year. The Georgia Department of Natural Resources said this week that nesting success was average to above average in areas surveyed. Places surveyed include coastal areas where avian flu hammered eagles last spring. Today marks the start of the annual Cephalopod Week. This year, Science Friday is partnering with GPB to help celebrate the ocean's super smart invertebrates. GPB's Grant Blankenship spoke with Science Friday's Ira Flato about octopuses and squids to find out what makes cephalopods so great. I think of Cephalopod Week as, as a tradition at this point, and I'm always excited when I hear it pop up on the radio every year. How how did you even start this and why? <laughs> yeah, it is a tradition. I think we're like in our 10th year of this. There, it started in a very interesting way. Um, about 10 years ago, Flora Lichtman, our video producer at the time, created a video called Where's the Octopus? Where marine biologist Roger Hanlon, he stumbles... He's scuba diving and stumbles literally on a camouflaged octopus, and he just scares him. He has to like, like grab onto his mouthpiece, <gasps> and it was amazing video. We, we we put it up on YouTube. It's got about six hundred thousand views now, and when we saw this video, we said, "Hey, you know, there's this thing called Shark Week on that other channel." Why don't we celebrate a much brainier, more interesting kind of animal, the cephalopods, squid, octopus, cuttlefish, or nautilus, which are magicians of disguise and a lot smarter than sharks. So we'll have our own cephalopod week. And that's how it happened. They are super smart and, and, and so various in their forms. I mean, are those the things that make them like such a great entree for people into like literally the rest of the world of science? Is that why this sticks? Well, you know, what's interesting about them, why it sticks, I think, is because they're so surprising. There was a, sto a famous story where a marine biologist had octopuses in his tanks. And every night, they, he would shut the lights off. And in the morning, he'd come back, and there was a fish missing from one of the tanks on the other side of the room. And he couldn't figure out what was going on. So one night, he closed the lights shut the door and stayed in the room. And he watched an octopus sneak up out of the tank, crawl on the floor all the way over to the other side of the room, go up into the tank, go fishing, steal a fish and go back into his home. So how, how could you not love that? How could you not want, <laughs> yeah, you know? How could you not love that? Exactly, yeah. Did you see that story recently about the scientist who thought he was watching an octopus in his lab have a nightmare? I did. I saw that story, and I thought it was crazy, right? I mean, <laughs> it, you watch it sort of sleeping, and then it starts going into wild contortions. And in the middle, just about halfway through, it inks itself. It lets out this big ink, which we all know is its defense. So maybe it had a nightmare about it being attacked. Of course, we, we don't know if octopuses even dream, much less have nightmares. So it was really, really interesting, and it's it's more... It adds to the lore about 
the cephalopod. So for the cephalopod curious who are maybe landlocked um, and can't scuba dive, and what's what's the best way for us to engage with them? How do how do we get close contact with these animals? Well, you know there are aquariums that have cephalopods in them. And um, they allow you to, you know, get up close and personal with them. You don't want to, um, you don't want to hurt them. I mean, the, you, and the aquariums won't allow you to do this. But you know, if you can't get to the cephalopods, go to the petting zoos in the aquariums and and, and react with those animals that they can allow you to touch. The first time I touched an octopus, and you could do this, is you could become a scuba diver, and you could go underwater. And look for an octopus. They, this, the dive masters know where they live. I found one when I was diving. The dive master took me to the pilings in a pier because octopuses, octopi, whichever you prefer, are nocturnal. They like to they like to come out at night. And he beckoned me over to this octopus, and my, I was scuba diving over there, and I swam over, and he had one in his hand, and I said, he said he's gesturing to me, hey, come come feel this. And I'm sort of afraid because I've never touched an octopus. But he's, he took the octopus and he sort of tilted his hand and it went into my hand. And you know what? I could hardly feel it because it's probably 98% water, right? And I'm in the water, so I'm just gently touching it. And it was one of the great moments of my diving experience. And I think that's the best way is to go out and go learn how to scuba dive and go see them in their natural habitat because they will do things in their natural habitat that you won't see them do in captivity because they're at home out there and they're they're the boss. What research are you watching most curiously? Like what's what's the stuff that you're looking forward to scientists telling you that we that you want to know about these animals? Well, you know, climate change is here, global warming is happening. That means the oceans are getting warmer, and when the oceans get warmer, a lot of uh, different stuff happens. When the oceans get full of carbon dioxide, they, they really suck up a lot of CO2. And when you suck up CO2, it turns into an acid in the water. It's just like if you have soda water. When you bubble CO2 through the soda water, you're actually creating um, an acid. The water gets more acidic. Uh, and that's bad for all sea creatures because they're not used to living in acidic water, and they're not used to living in warming water. And it doesn't take much warming in an ocean to affect the marine life there. We're talking, you know, fraction of a degree. So, so many researchers are looking into how climate change is affecting all the animals in the water, and, 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 and the octopi and the cephalopods are certainly part of that family. We won't know what's going to happen. For folks who come uh, see Cephalopod Week in Atlanta um, at our studio, what what can they expect? How yeah. is how is this experience going to be different? It's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. We always have fun at these. Okay, so the audience is going to hear from two really amazing local experts. Emily Green is an aquarist from the nearby Georgia Aquarium with almost ten years of experience caring for cephalopods and sea jellies, turtles. Under other underwater creatures. And then we have uh, Nicole Johnston, a biology lecturer at Spelman College, who teaches about coral reefs and ocean acidification due to climate change. Plus, the audience, I love this, the audience can ask them questions. And you know what happens? I have to, I have to warn the audience in advance, because this ha- we do this a lot. 
when we get to a Q&A period and we ask people for questions, people are shy about going up to the microphone. And you know what happens? The kids get there first. Ah, a nine-year-old, yeah, a nine-year-old is going to muscle you out. Let me, because I've <laughs> seen this. And if you want to get a question in, make sure you get there early, because we and they ask the best questions. So that's actually the best part is the, is the Q and A part. I love that. Arifledo, right. thank you so much for talking to me, and I am looking forward to the event. And that is it for this edition of Georgia Today. If you want to learn more about any of these stories, visit gpb.org slash news. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back with you in your podcast feed on Monday afternoon. And as always, if you've got feedback or a story idea, we want to hear from you. Send us an email. The address is georgiatoday at gpb.org. I'm Peter Biello. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.